Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Simon Baron Cohen on the podcast. Simon is Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry and Director of the Autism Research Center at Cambridge University. He's the author of 600 scientific articles and multiple books, including The Science of Evil, The Essential Difference, and most recently, The Pattern Seekers, How Autism Drives Human Evolution. Uh, <laughs> the Pattern Seekers, How Autism Drives Human Invention. Simon, it's so great to chat with you today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I uh, feel like um, we go way back to the Cambridge days. I remember uh, giddily attending your lectures um, at Cambridge and, and sitting in the very, very back bench. <laughs> you know, they had benches and yeah. and being like, wow, the great Simon Baron Cohen. It was, it was a fun, fun time. Great. Yeah. Well, yeah, I remember those times too. And it's good to sort of meet you again in the present. Yeah. Uh, here I am still in Cambridge. Where are you? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a good question. I'm, I'm, I'm in Santa Monica, California right now because I'm okay. I'm stranded uh, due to COVID. So it's a whole a whole story. But uh, but I'm a professor at Columbia in in New York City. Yeah. yeah. Great. And you know during regular programming. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, you know, really enjoyed reading this new book of yours because I've been I've been I've been reading all your books and kind of looking at the evolution of your thinking on this topic. In fact, that's that's how I'd like to start this conversation is on what you see as as some of the biggest um, core aspects of the evolution of your thinking about this topic from when you first started studying it to now. Yeah. So I would say that the the big change that's happened over the thirty thirty five years that I've been involved in autism research, for me, that um, 
we we it wasn't just me but you know the field was focusing on kind of the deficits that autistic people have um which is maybe no surprise because that's part of how the diagnosis is made so autistic people struggle with social skills with communication uh with adjusting to unexpected change um and you know a lot of the research back then was just focused on the social difficulties and maybe what's what's changed is that we we're realizing that autism is more than just a disability autism involves thinking differently um there's a kind of a, a new phrase that i'm sure we'll talk about neurodiversity yeah you know, these are individuals who process information differently they think differently and some of those differences aren't about disability they're about strengths and even talents so kind of you know the second half of my career as it were has focused more on the strengths on the positive aspects of autism not just focusing on what they find difficult but what they might do even better than the rest of us so uh, talents is a, is a fascinating area let's double click for a second on even even within the, our, our changing understanding of their social deficits let's let's double click on that as well before we get to talent and creativity because um, I, you know as I more more I dig into that literature I see that a lot of autistic individuals are have a lot greater motivation to connect and to make friends and um, and meet than maybe they were given credit for in the past and maybe even they have you know you know the difference between cognitive um, and affective empathy you know and how maybe in certain aspects of empathy they actually um, aren't yeah. impaired and I was just wondering how your thinking in terms of the social realm has changed as well over the years yeah, absolutely. So um, I think it's a myth or a stereotype that autistic people don't want to socialize. Um, I mean, that may be true of some, and we should be careful not to generalize. But it's true you know, of anyone. Me, it's true of anyone, really. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but I think I've certainly met autistic people who want friends but just have difficulty making friends, or if they make friends... Uh, maybe have difficulty keeping friends, you know, uh, so the motivation might well be there. But you raised this uh, question about empathy. And, um, you know, one kind of old view was that um, autistic people struggle with, um, with some aspect of empathy. But what I think what we now know is they don't struggle with all of empathy. So empathy is this kind of umbrella concept and within empathy, you mentioned we, we can distinguish at least two components, cognitive and affective. The cognitive part is being able to imagine someone else's thoughts and feelings. So it's the kind of uh, recognition part. Um, but, and, and it does involve a bit of, an, of a leap of imagination because we can't directly see what someone is thinking or feeling. So there's an, an imaginative component to it. But the affective part is having an emotional response to someone else's thoughts and feelings. So it's more the response element. And when it comes to autistic people, they seem to have more difficulty with the first kind of empathy, the cognitive empathy. Mm. Um, maybe because they like facts and precision. And when you're trying to imagine another person's thoughts and feelings, 
we don't have a lot of facts to go on. That's why we have to be willing to make that leap of imagination. You know, I wonder if Scott is feeling this or I wonder if he might be thinking this. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's speculative. It's not factual. Uh, but they don't seem to struggle with the affective part of empathy. So if you tell an autistic person, um, you know, Scott is feeling really sad, you know, because he just had a recent loss, you know, an autistic person, just like anyone else, will feel bad about that and want to sort of step in and try to help or to give comfort. So they have the appropriate emotions once they know the information. But it's kind of getting, you know, uh, getting the information about what is someone thinking or feeling that they struggle with. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I'm very interested in the difference between autism and psychopathy, for instance, and you've written this book, Evil, and really diving into that. Could you could you please talk a little about some of the differences? Because I don't think serial killers are, are really great at affective empathy. Is that right? You don't think what? Serial killers are, are amazing well, at affective killers. empathy. No, no, exactly. So, I mean, serial killers would be like an extreme case. But if, even if we just thought about antisocial personality sure. disorder, they don't all end up being serial killers. But Of course. Uh, Most psychopaths you know, are on Wall Street, not, in, not, not serial killers. Yeah. No. Um, hopefully not for too long. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some people have suggested that people with antisocial personality disorder, which would include, um, you know, psychopaths, as we call them, um, they might be the mirror image of autistic people. Mm. So they may have very good cognitive empathy. That's how they can sort of, so they can figure out what you might think, what you might want, what you might feel. And that may be how they can manipulate people and deceive people, uh, including their victims. But they probably don't have great affective empathy. Mm. So they don't really care about their victims' feelings. And that's how they're able to commit the, the horrible crimes that they do. Mm. So, so that was the kind of topic of my previous book. Mm. Uh, in the UK, the title, the title of the book was Zero Degrees of Empathy. Mm. Looking at how do people lose their empathy in different ways. Um, I think in the US they call it the science of evil. Yeah. But the Sounds very says American. Something. Yeah, the American publishers thought that would be kind of, you know, yeah. better suited to American readers. But the, anyway, that was the kind of, it was it was all about how do we explain cruelty um, and how do we explain kindness too in terms of these two different fractions of empathy. Yeah, it was a really good book. and. You know, this idea of this discrepancy between affective and cognitive empathy among people on the autism spectrum, it must be very confusing to them uh, quite often to be able to feel something but not be able to cognitively attach and understand as maybe as readily and and easily as as someone else, a neurotypical person, what Mm -hmm. it is they're feeling, like being able to label aspects of emotional intelligence that um, allow us to navigate the world. Yeah. Um, I think that when when autistic people again we're generalizing, but sure. but when autistic people feel concern for another person, I think they know what they know what they're feeling, and when they want to rush out and help or stand up against an injustice, you know I think they know what they know what they're feeling, 
Mm. Um, I think it's more, um, you know, the cognitive aspect of empathy might be very um, bewildering. Yeah. So, if, so if you're looking at someone's face and you can't be sure how to interpret it, yeah. so difficulties with interpreting facial expression or vocal intonation. You know, is he being sarcastic? Is he being angry? Is he being bored? You know, all the different potential mental states that could be expressed. If you've got trouble reading those things that other people can read very intuitively, you know, I think that's probably quite confusing. And then the other way that we use cognitive empathy um, or that it is used is to predict people's behavior, to make sense of behavior and to predict what people might do next you know so if we if we ascribe to another person this person may want to cheat me we might sort of think twice about trusting them or you know but with autistic people often they might just take their what take another person's words at face value Hmm. and it leaves them very vulnerable to exploitation in different ways thinking about the other person's motives, for example. Absolutely. And they're also tend to people not in the spectrum tend to, um, say what's on their mind. You know, they don't like bullshit. And can that be difficult in this, in this world of wokeness? You know, have you ever thought about that? Like, can it be difficult because people want to, they just say what they, they want to understand things, you know, and maybe some of the things they want to understand aren't politically correct. Yeah. So again, the kind of neurotypical world, as we now call it, um, involves a lot of, you know, you're expected to be able to read between the lines yeah. and, and maybe not always say what's on your mind uh, or kind of, um, you know, find an, a, a nice way to say it, which doesn't hurt the other person's feelings, or whatever. But, you know, all of this takes a lot of complex processing of how can I say something keeping in mind what the other person might feel or think. Uh, whereas a lot, of, with a lot of autistic people I've met prefer just much more direct, sometimes blunt communication, but at least, you know, and then, and then they want to take people's words as a direct readout of what people are thinking. Right. And, they want, and they want other people to do the same with them. And, you know, how, how much easier would life be if we could just take people's, you know, words at face value much more kind of literal communication but you know that's not the way the work the real world works people say that they're going to be your friend but actually they may not mean it yeah. you know and it's it, it does leave autistic people very confused and and as i say vulnerable yeah i mean but the more I, when i read your work and stuff i start thinking well wow, i have a lot of autistic like traits it's possible to have autistic like traits right and not be um, uh, on the autism spectrum, is that is that possible? You know, in terms of personality characteristics, because when you start describing some of this stuff, it's like, yeah. like you're just, I feel like you're describing me, <laughs> but in a lot of ways, yeah. yeah. So I guess another thing that's changed over the decades of of research is that we now recognise autistic traits run right through the population. So we all we all have some autistic traits. Yeah, we actually develop we developed a metric. Uh, an instrument for how, you know, to measure how many autistic traits a person has. It's just a questionnaire. Hmm. It's called the AQ, the Autism Spectrum Quotient. And uh, it's a a sort of bell curve in the population. So most of us have just an average number. Um, And then people who 
um, who need a diagnosis of autism just tend to have a lot more. So they're kind of shifted over to the right of the bell curve. Mm. And even then, you could have a lot of autistic traits and still not need a diagnosis mm. because it's always always about the fit between you and your your situation. Mm. So even if you have a lot of autistic traits, if they're not interfering with your life, if they're not causing any causing you to suffer, then you may not need a diagnosis. You know. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So maybe we should dive into your new book because I want we we did a good job there. I think laying the foundation and you know uh, sure. for for this the, your latest work, your latest yeah. masterpiece, uh, the Pattern Seekers. Uh, so the main thesis of this new book is that the genes for autism perhaps drove the evolution of human invention, even going back 80,000 years ago. Because, you know, of course, you know, but my listeners um, may not know this, but uh, there was this big bang of cultural explosion that we see, you know, in, in humanity um, that has been um, not fully explained yet. Uh, Jeffrey Miller has hypothesis sexual selection, right? You know, and um, sure. others have, people have their different theories about what it was. Uh, I'd love to hear your thinking on and how perhaps the genes um, uh, for, for systematizing and, and autism might have played a role there. Sure. Um, so, you know, in my book, I kind of look at um, invention and um, arguing that there's a link between, I think it's uniquely human, the capacity for invention um, and autism. You know, and on the face of it, you know, it doesn't seem like there should be a link. You know, autism, as we've been describing, is traditionally viewed as a disability. Uh, invention is almost like the crowning achievement of our species. Yeah. If you look around the planet, you know, what characterizes Homo sapiens seems to be our kind of unstoppable uh, capacity for invention. You know, here we are talking through Skype, you know, an invention uh, possibly invented by somebody who had a lot of autistic traits, a man in Denmark. Um, mm. uh, but anyway, you know, we our whole environment, you know, um, you know, I've got my cup of juice here. And, you know, I have my pen here and all the things around us are just kind of inventions when you start looking at it. Is that They're apple every... juice? Is that apple juice? Oh, well, that's actually um, orange juice. Uh, I, was trying, I was like, what is that? <laughs> if, we, if we were a little bit closer, maybe in the same room, I would share my juice with you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Even during the COVID age? <laughs> um, so, you know... Um, I, I, my book, you know, first of all addresses, well, what is invention? What do we mean by invention? And I, you know, I take as my starting point, the archeological record, mm. you know, when do we see the first signs of invention? And some people argue that because our ancestors before Homo sapiens, there was Homo habilis, Homo erectus, even the Neanderthals, they were using stone tools. So do those things count as invention? You know, they had um, they were using stone rocks like a hammer to crack a nut, or they were they were they were making their own axes out of stone mm. to cut or to you know um, you know to to slice uh, or to scrape in different ways. You know, so simple tools with limited number of functions, but do those count as, as inventions? Well, I sort of see those as um, 
we could argue about whether those are inventions, but they, was, they seem to be quite limited. Yeah. And then around 100,000 years ago to 70,000 years ago, Homo sapiens is on the scene, yeah. and we see this kind of explosion of new inventions. And just to give you a couple of examples, uh, 70,000 years ago, we see the bow and arrow, which I argue is a complex tool, mm. not a simple one. Uh, and we see other amazing things like the first jewelry, which was a necklace of bead shells, and the first musical instrument, which was a, a flute made out of a bone, a hollow bone. And in each of these cases, you can sort of see a particular logic that must have been in the minds of the person who invented it. And I argue that there was a new circuit in the brain, which I call the systemizing mechanism, which allowed us to, it allowed us to look for these new patterns in the world. I call them if and then patterns. So if we take the bow and arrow, or the inventor of the bow and arrow, he or she would have been thinking, if I attach an arrow to a stretchy fiber and I release the tension in the fiber, then the arrow will fly. So it's if and then. You know, or if, or if we take this kind of um, first musical instrument, the inventor would have been thinking, if I blow down this hollow bone and I cover one hole, then I get a particular note. But if I blow down the bone and uncover the hole, then I get a different note. And what we're basically seeing is human beings experimenting, doing little experiments, using this if-and-then logic. And my thesis is that this, this derived from a new mechanism in the brain. It was like a revolution in the human brain, hmm. that other species, our, our ancestors and other species living today, chimpanzees or birds or dolphins, no other species has got this kind of capacity for looking for these logical patterns, if and then patterns. And that's what's enabled, you know, unstoppable, I call it generative invention. We don't just we don't just invent once, we're generating nonstop. You know, we've even in, invented a vaccine against COVID. It's incredible. We're still doing it. Yeah. Connect the dots between that and autism. Sure. So um, autistic people, when you give them little tests of this if and then reasoning, they score above average on these tests. Uh, when you give them questionnaires asking how interested are you in systems of one kind or another, because the minimal definition of a system is these if and then patterns. Engineers call it input, operation, output, but they map onto the same constructs. You know, you take the input, you perform an operation on it, and then you look, look at the output, you see what you get. Um, and when you, when you use those questionnaires, we've got one called the systemizing quotient, which just asks you how interested are you in how things are made? Um, in what, you know, how interested are you in taking things apart to see how the, what the components are in a, a system? How interested are you in, in numbers or in musical patterns uh, or in the weather, patterns of the weather? Um, 
you know, autistic people score much higher on those questionnaires. And so do people who work in STEM, in science, technology, engineering, and math. So there are these little clues that autistic people may think in very similar ways, um, that their systemizing mechanism may be kind of tuned to a higher level so that they're seeing these patterns much more than other people. They're looking for them, they're playing with the patterns, um, and, and they're doing this at an above average level. Very interesting hypothesis. How do you, um, do you, do you think your hypothesis is better than the other hypotheses that are out there? For instance, I'll lay out a couple others. You know, some have argued language is the seat of yeah. consciousness that allowed for the, yeah. but language is reduced in autism, uh, there, you know, verbal communication. Um, another hypothesis is, uh, you know, Previc, uh, has this theory that, that the dopaminergic mind is what is responsible, you know, that it's really, that's the dopamine that's pumping that exploration drive, but you actually see reduced levels of that in people with autism, um, you know, in, in, in terms of that form of creativity, it's a, it's a more schizotypy kind of form of creativity. So mm -hmm. um, yeah. uh, how do you reconcile that with all those other competing theories? Sure. Uh, we could take them one by one, but if we just take language, for example, because uh, obviously one huge difference between modern humans, Homo sapiens, and uh, our ancestors, and equally other living non-human species, is language. Um, and language undoubtedly gave us all kinds of advantages over other species. Uh, but I don't necessarily see systemizing as incompatible with language. Mm. So those if-and-then patterns that I think are needed every time you invent something, um, I think also are seen in syntax in language. So when, we, when we're trying to derive the rules of, of, of syntax, it's no different really to deriving the rules of music or the rules of mathematics or the rules of you know, how, how your computer works. Um, it takes that if-and-then logic um, I wanted to mention that in this theory about what changed in the human brain 70,000 years ago to 100,000 years ago, I think there were two big changes. I've mentioned the systemizing mechanism, but the other one we touched on earlier, which I call the empathy circuit. Uh -huh. Because when we look at these new inventions that suddenly appeared in the archaeological record, we can see them as evidence of systemizing mm -hmm. that suddenly we modern humans could could reason in using this particular logic but i think we can also see them as evidence of the empathy circuit so take the musical instrument you know the inventor wasn't just thinking what happens when i blow down the, the hollow bone and cover one hole how does the sound change not just thinking about the physics of the object but they were probably also thinking, what's going to be the impact on a listener? Mm. You know, how might somebody else experience the sounds that I'm making? You know, might they take the music that I'm, I'm creating as communicating? So that might be, you know, pointing not just to the inventor having the capacity to systemize or to invent, but also to think about the experience of other people. 
Mm. Equally with the first jewelry, you know, so the first jewelry, which goes back 70,000 years, somebody had collected some shells and drilled a little hole into each shell. Mm. So you can see them systemizing if I take this shell and I drill a hole into each shell and I insert a thread through the holes, then I can create a necklace. You know, so you can see the if and then logic. But equally, you know, why were they making this jewelry? Was it because they were thinking about how they would be perceived if they wore it? That somebody else might perceive them as more attractive or um, a different social status? Or were they making the jewelry as a gift for somebody else because they imagined somebody else might want it or appreciate it? So the jewelry itself can be taken both as evidence of the systemizing mechanism and the empathy circuit being in place. Hmm. So I'm trying and, to, you know, yeah. yeah. But I was just going to say that, you know, when we go back to language as a kind of, a, you know, a, a rival theory for why did, you know, why did humans come to dominate the planet? I think you can see language itself as a kind of, uh, it draws on both systemizing, that's the syntax element, and it draws on the empathy circuit, because when we communicate, we have to be thinking about what does our listener need to know? You know, what is our listener, um, you know, is my listener understanding my my communications? You know, do I need to clarify my message? So empathy kind of is involved in language too. So I don't see language as a sort of... Um, you know, as a, a rival explanation. I think it kind of includes at least two of these big ingredients. And are you claiming that uh, people, uh, that autistic people, um, by the way, is it people with autism or autistic people? Have you settled, have you settled that? that uh, which is it? So there isn't a right or wrong, you know, way to talk about autism, but um, from talking to the autism community, my reading is that the majority prefer to prefer what's called identity first language. So I'm an autistic person rather autistic than I, I have aut I have autism. So is the um, is the uh, is, there, is the idea that autistic people um, are don't have necessarily that uh, high functioning empathy circuit that you're describing there, but they have the systematizing one. Uh, but it 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 obviously there was more than just autism that that drove the evolution of of humanity, um, and I think so. So I think listening to what you're saying, I think we can come up with a meta theory uh, that uh, that even allows us to incorporate um, schizotypal thinking uh, and that form of openness to experience and um, dopamine uh, and the default mode brain network. So I'm really fascinated with the default mode brain network and I've called it, I've called it the imagination network um, in, yeah. in popular talks and things. Um, and, uh, and I'm very interested in, in the idea that people, the autistic people tend to um, not have as um, uh, default activation of their default mode network. So um, a lot of that kind of social imagination is, is, uh, yeah. is, is not as, um, on call for them, so to speak, but it seems like both. Yeah. So I think that maps onto what you're saying is both that kind of social imagination is important yeah. as well as systematizing. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the default mode network 
my understanding of, of the brain regions involved is that they do overlap quite a lot with what's called theory of mind or yeah. cognitive empathy, right? So when you're, when you're lying in the MRI scanner and your mind is just wandering, you know, for, for a typical person, often you're thinking about other people mm-hmm. and you're, you're thinking about other people's thoughts about you or you're thinking about your own thoughts. Either way, you, 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 that might lead to an activation of these social regions of the brain. Uh, when we reflect on our own thoughts or on someone else's thoughts, it's likely to involve the same circuitry, um, this, this ability to imagine thoughts and feelings. Um, yeah, and, you know, there's, and there's plenty of evidence that in autistic people, there's underactivation of those yeah. regions. Yeah. Either when they're doing an explicit social task or even when they're just sort of in resting state, as it's called, you know, just doing nothing, lying in the scanner. Um, but, you know, what we did was a big population study. We call it the brain types study, where we got over over half a million people to take part. Um, so this is described in the book. Uh, we had, I think, 600,000 people from the general population and then 36,000 non-autistic people, sorry, autistic people. So 600,000 non-autistic and 36,000 autistic. So it was a very, very big study. And they took this systemizing quotient, the empathy quotient, and also this third measure, AQ, which measures autistic traits. And we saw some very interesting patterns that, again, kind of made us um, see links between people who are talented at systemizing or talented at invention and autistic traits. Wow. This is absolutely fascinating. I think um, I'm really weird personally because I think I score two standard deviations above the mean on both autism and schizotypy at the same time. And I'm wondering how that's humanly possible. But (laughs) have uh, have you ever met anyone who scores high in both? Of the questionnaires, um, it's a pleasure to you know you may be the first. That's great. <laughs> no, there's got to be more. There's got to be more because I I I have a very good social imagination, um, as well yeah. as um I really like when I when I meet someone an autistic person I really feel comfortable with them. You know I really feel like coming home in in a way. You know that all the bullshit is you know cut out of. I can just we can just yeah. talk. You know like, but I also feel very at home with artsy you know flighty like dreamers as well yeah you know um yeah so this is really cool uh being able to clarify some of this stuff because uh there there's almost two separate literatures in uh now i'm going to put it this way within the science of creativity literature um there tends to be much more of a focus on the dopaminergic but talking about inventions you know yeah i mean i was i was coming up you know with you know my pen is an invention You've got Alexa there, but they're, they all they, they were all made possible possible by that same systemizing circuit in the brain. You know this if and then logic. The person who who programmed Alexa, or you know whether it's a, a a physical concrete system or a more digital one. So I think it's great that we had a little a little sort of auditory aid Good. there. Good. We could tie it to the lesson plan of the day. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I don't know if you look into the science of creativity literature, 
but that literature, you know, even like the creative identity questionnaire, like so much for the, the, the creative questionnaire, divergent thinking test, it's all so much focused. I wouldn't say it's on autistic like creativity that you're talking about that kind of invention kind of thinking i feel like it's focused more on openness to experience and um and uh and uh more of like default mode network kind of um creativity so could it be that maybe this autistic form of uh, the, the the great strengths for creativity have gone neglected even in this in the creativity literature within psychology that i, I would say it has to a to a large extent um so let me check. I understand your question. Have they, these theories have been neglected in the creativity in, literature? Right. You know. So, I mean, I think this. You know, I think this um, focus on if and then patterns yeah. could be very relevant to understanding creativity. Yeah. Because the point is, that you can, you know, you can take any system, analyze it in terms of if and then, but then you can start to play with any one of these variables. You can change the input, that's the if, or you can change the operation you perform on the input, that's the and, mm -hmm. to get a different, a different then, a different output. And so just as, a, as, a, as a, a way of explaining how do we generate novelty, how do we generate new patterns, I think this, this could add to that literature. Yeah. Uh, equally, coming back to autistic people, I think the concept of divergent thinking or thinking out of the box, you know, it could be that autistic people have a certain advantage being sort of less sociable and less preoccupied by what do other people think. They're not following the crowd. They're not following conventions. They're not following what's fashionable, but they're kind of thinking things through from first principles, which may mean that they can come up with, with a fresh way of looking at something. So I, I think you've done a great service there in, in bringing that point to the fore because, you know, I mean, I've been ensconced in the creativity literature for 20 years or so, and it's just so much of it is a focus. You know, they do talk about connecting dots, but it's it's not so much focused with like pattern recognition ability as much as like openness to experience and artsy kind of, you know, like for instance, reduced delayed inhibition, you know, that kind of um, having a low filter, having like a, you know. Yeah. Uh, so so I, I like that you're bringing this into the discussion of invention and creativity, not only bringing it in, but you're saying it's may, may have been the, the main driving force of, of human yeah. invention. So. Yeah. So that big study I mentioned earlier, the 600,000 people, um, we, were, we were basically able to categorize the whole population into five types of brain. I was going to ask you that. So, yeah. Yeah, so, so some people score much higher in systemizing than they do on empathy. So we call that type S. And other people have the reverse profile. They score much higher on empathy than they do on systemizing. So we call that type E. Mm. And each of those brain types um, is about 30% of the population. Mm. And then there's a, a middle group who are kind of equally good at systemizing, at seeing these patterns as they are reading other people's thoughts and feelings. So we call them type B for balanced, and that's another 30%. And then we have people who are at the extremes. So an extreme of type S is someone who kind of sees patterns all the time. They're always looking for these patterns and playing with them, experimenting with them. 
but their empathy may just be average or below average. Hmm. And that's where we see a lot of autistic people. But also, that's where we see people in the world of STEM. Hmm. So there's this kind of overlap between people who are inventors and autistic people. And the big surprise for us was when we collected DNA, working with the company 23andMe, we found that the genetic, the common genetic variants that are associated with scoring high in systemizing overlap to some extent with the common genetic variants that are associated with autism. So even at the molecular level, not just at the cognitive level, at the molecular level, we were seeing an overlap between autistic people and people who invent. What are the genes? What are the genes code for? Do, do, do you know? Do you know? So, so these are genes that are they're they're called uh, they're called single nucleotide polymorphisms. So these are genes that might be anywhere in the genome, but which come in different versions. That, so we might be carrying slightly different versions of the gene or the alleles, and each of these um, polymorphisms or common genetic variants has a tiny effect on behavior, which is why you need kind of large population studies to see how they're working in combination. So there isn't a quick answer to say, look on chromosome seven or look on, right? Because there are hundreds or even thousands of these things, but it's about, you know, do you carry a particular combination? And what we found was that the particular combination that, that we call them hypersystemizers carry mm. overlaps. It's not a complete overlap. It was about 26% overlap with the, the combination that autistic people carry. So, um, you know, the fact that we find any association with genetics and pattern recognition uh, I think is quite important because it's telling us that natural selection may have shaped people to either be better or worse at pattern recognition. There may have been some advantages to um, a, a person who could see these patterns more quickly uh, and build new systems. Uh, and then the link with autism just suggests that maybe we need to rethink autism, that we shouldn't just see it as a disability. That they're carrying, you know, the genes that make them autistic you know, are also the genes that, you know, have allowed human progress. Beautiful. So the natural next question is why don't monkeys skateboard? <laughs> well, um, thank you for that question. I mean, this is a this is the title of a chapter in my book. You know, and I'm kind of curious when you look around at other species. We just don't see them experimenting. You know, with humans, you know, skateboarding is a great example of experimenting. If you watch kids out in the street, it might irritate you that they're kind of skating up and down a ramp and doing it for hours and hours, and they're trying to perfect a particular move. And it turns out there are at least 101 different things you can do with a skateboard. You know, there's... You know, we don't just do one thing with it. We're always experimenting to see what we can do with it. You know, and kids who go out to do this, they're not doing it because their parents told them, you've got to study harder to, you know, to improve your skateboarding. They're just doing it because they have to experiment. 
And we just don't see this in monkeys or in apes or in, you know, any other species, really. So although that's a kind of like a ludicrous example, yeah. it is interesting that, you know, we could take a much simpler example, like in the playground, um, you know, we've humans have built a seesaw, mm. you know, where we're playing with what happens to the seesaw when different people are at each end and there are different weights. We're experimenting with, with you know, with with physics effectively, um, and we just don't see this in other species. So to me, you know, what what this is shouting out is that, you know, other species don't experiment. We experiment with with medicines, you know, even thinking about, you know, natural herbs as medicines, you know, and our ancestors were doing this long before modern science experimenting with what you know what kinds of foods um or things that we could eat or drink might heal certain ailments but all of this is this if and then logic you know that today we take an aspirin as a painkiller to 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 get rid of a headache you know we know that that's derived from the bark of the willow tree and that it's come from traditional medicine that was you know the result of playing with these these if and then patterns you know if i have a headache and i eat the bark of the willow tree then my headache goes away it's the same logic we don't see monkeys experimenting with with medicine either so why why i'm still not clear on on i mean i i don't expect you to have all the answers to all of life's mysteries figured out, but what, what, what caused, what allowed, enabled this ability? I mean, couldn't one argue it was the emergence of consciousness uh, to a certain degree, or um, that even language enabled uh, us to have this kind of scientific thinking? Um, so again, you know, we we talked a little earlier, but you know, that language would have been of huge benefit. If we could talk to ourselves or talk to other people, we could pass on some of the lessons we'd learned, or we could do some of this hypothetical thinking through language. Um, you know, I'm sort of struck that there are humans who don't have language mm. as a result of a stroke. Yeah. I mean, there are humans, you know, autistic people who have very minimal language but they still can do some of this pattern recognition and playing with patterns to invent, including with music. You know, so I'm not sure that language is, is a necessary sort of precursor for invention. But I guess the other way you could look at this question is um, we know that monkeys and apes can, can see patterns. Um, and, you know, we were talking earlier about your time in Cambridge mm. when you were studying with um, the great Nick McIntosh. Yeah. You know, he was, you know he, his field of, of uh, specialty was about kind of association learning, associative learning, yeah. uh, particularly in non-human animals. You know, so monkeys can do a, a hell of a lot. So can birds and, you know, uh, many different species. Um, they can they can use associative learning to see the relationship between A and B. So using the hammer, A leads to the outcome 
B, which is to get the juicy inside of the nut. You know, mm. but that's not, that's not necessarily going to give you invention. Just being able to just being able to learn the association between two two items, if you like, uh, or even doing that in sequence. You know, because monkeys and and birds can often do associative learning across many different steps. You know, so paired. You know, they're they're, they're pairing lots of associations in a sequence, but it doesn't. It, that doesn't add up to this if and then logic, which I think is the thing that gives us generative invention. Well, where did that come from? Like, how did we yeah, get it? So how do we get that add-on? <laughs> um, you know, Pack. and I suppose this. The, I suppose you know there are two answers to this. One might have been that we're looking at an abrupt change in the human brain that was almost like a a quantum leap. Uh, the other possibility was that you know we're looking at incremental changes, and I don't think there's a kind of there's any evidence to settle that debate yet. I, um, I know I didn't know, expect us to have settled it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not today. Yeah, but not you know. Today. Um, I mean, I just love. I know that I can nerd out with you at a deeper level than maybe, you know, when you're on like the BBC or something, you know, like, so like, let's, let's get into it. You know, there's, there's some really interesting, no offense to the BBC, but you know what I'm saying? You know, we're, we're, we're two psychologists talking shop. So, but you know, um, there's yeah. two things I'd like to recommend Gregory Feist's book, the psychology of science and the origins of the scientific mind. Um, it's a really okay. uh, great book. He tries to, his own uh, attempt to trace the evolution of uh, of modern day huma you know creativity through the emergence of scientific thinking. Um, but also Daniel Bohr wrote a really good book called The Ravenous Brain. Um, okay. Have you come across Daniel Bohr? He's at Cambridge. Um, so um, I think he's still at Cambridge. I've certainly yeah. met him. We worked together. We even published a paper together. Cool. That was on synesthesia, actually, which is something we haven't yet talked about. But, uh, yeah, he, I haven't read his book, so thank you for recommending it. Yeah, because I think it's relevant in terms of like uh, talking about the, the prefrontal cortex's ability to chunk information and consciousness and how that allows yeah. you to see patterns. Um, so that, that seems relevant as well. Okay. But, you know, the work I did with Nick McIntosh, now I'm realizing, I just realized now is very relevant to your work. And I I really okay. wish to darn he was alive and we could have like an email thread chain on this, you know, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Maybe we could um, dedicate this podcast to his memory. Let's do because that. I think he, I think he was um, an inspiration to both of us. Deep, deep um, inspiration. My greatest mentor. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he had a fantastic sort of. Uh, again, logical way of of thinking problems, yeah. you know, through, uh, but a, a real clarity of thought too. And um, plus, plus, he was just a real uh, a real nice guy, you know. So he had that kind of combination of of logic and kind of the kind of warmth of humanity. So you know, he died uh, way too soon. Yeah. Uh, but a very distinguished psychologist. Yes, thank you for for talking about that. Um, I think that uh, that's a good service. Um, but you know, the the research he was pushing me in direction in is to look at the distinction between implicit learning that we share with other animals that you were describing and and human intelligence, and mm. that that was the topic of my um, my dissertation. 
uh, that okay. he was one of the advisors on. So we found it, it was dissociable. So there is something there. Uh, in right. ter- I'm not saying, so there might be something to what you're saying. That's not, that's not what I meant, but I'm saying <laughs> it might not be crazy after all, Simon Baron Cohen. But, you, but I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> that my, my point is, um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I'm, I, I, I'm saying um, I'm excited that, that, that there's, a, there's potential linkage that I hadn't really thought of before, but uh, right. the, the correlation between the ability to solve like Raven's advanced progressive matrices items, which we know people in autism actually are better at on average and finding those patterns consciously, there was almost a zero correlation with individual differences in unconscious uh, pattern learning. Right. So can you tell me, I'll send you um, the paper. I mean, you're, yeah. your, your dissertation sounds great. And can you tell me how did you measure the implicit learning or impr- implicit associations? Well, we used a form of SRT uh, learning, which is serial reaction time. And um, so we had people uh, do key presses and the 80% of the time it would follow a certain pattern and 25 or maybe it was 85, 15%, 15% it followed a different pattern and unknown to people because during the debriefing, they said, I had no idea there was a pattern. Um, people's right. response times were getting much faster when there was a pat- yeah. unconscious pattern, but they had no conscious awareness of it. And we found there were individual yeah. differences in that, you know, like, and it correlated yes. with openness to experience and create and some, some forms of creativity. Right. But it was wholly uncorrelated with ravens. Yeah. Right. And you, and your listeners, uh, our listeners, yeah. may be interested to know that, uh, but correct me if I'm wrong, that this kind of uh, implicit association learning or recognition of patterns is something that's widespread in the animal kingdom. Yeah, implicit learning is, that- is widespread. Yeah, it's m- mostly their, their, their main form of learning, anything. Yeah. 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 And yet, you know, other animals don't seem to invent. You know, that seems yeah. to be, it's not the only thing that characterizes modern humans, but I think it's a big one. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> I agree. I think, it's a, I think it's a terrific point. I, I really do. Um, you, you made another really good point, which I'm glad you made in your book. You said, when we acknowledge the debt we owe autistic people and make our society more inclusive and autism friendly, this will benefit society, lead to innovation, and enable autistic people to lead more fulfilling and sex and successful lives. Um, I'd love to. I'd love you to, to elaborate a little bit on on some ways we can make the workplace and even education more autistic friendly. But before yeah. I before you get into that, I, I, there's something that fascinates me. And that's that you're you're actually a little bit controversial in certain uh, circles of the neurodiversity uh, movement. Um, it, it always boggles my mind. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Why do you get some pushback when you make like you'll make even some things that sound to me just like just like wonderful, like autism friendly, inclusive, and but you'll get actually pushback. You know, you, I guess you can't please everyone in the world. It's something I've I've learned <laughs> as I get older. Sure. But but what is some yeah. of this potential? Why are you potentially uh, controversial? Um, so we talked earlier about empathy, mm-hmm. uh, and I think some autistic people have reacted negatively to the idea that they have any difficulties in empathy. Mm. And yet a lot, of, a lot of my work, but also the work of others, has documented you know, difficulties with cognitive empathy or theory of mind. So there is a bit of pushback about that. Um, when we did that big study with 36,000 autistic people, 
you know, they did score lower on the EQ, the empathy quotient. Um, they scored higher on the systemizing quotient, but that empathy piece is still there. But and you know, for some autistic people, that that might that might feel stigmatizing. And I, you know, I apologize for that. I, it's not the intent. The intention is not to stigmatize. You know, we're we're just measuring and we're documenting what we find. But you know, that might just be one example. But you know, back to your kind of bigger yeah. point, which is you know. If, if this theory has any merit, that autistic people right through the last 70 to 100,000 years have been the individuals who have been more than, you know, been above average in systemizing, in playing with these if and then patterns to come up with new inventions. So if we kind of owe them this huge debt, you know, when we look at um, what's around us today, and then look at their situation today. You know, I've, I personally find it really heartbreaking. So we did, we published this study back in 2015, um, looking at suicide rates mm. or suicidality in autistic adults. And what we found was that two thirds of autistic adults had felt suicidal. Mm. One third had attempted suicide. You know, this is kind of way above the, the rates you'd see in the general population. And if you kind of look at their situation, the majority of autistic adults are unemployed. So despite these talents that we've been talking about, they're not finding jobs, they're not having that sense of, of being valued by society. We know that unemployment for anybody is bad for your mental health because it makes you feel like you don't have a purpose, um, that you're excluded. Uh, it makes you more isolated. You don't feel you belong. Mm. You know, and maybe no surprise that the majority of autistic adults have depression and anxiety. So, you know, I sort of see that on the one hand, we've got this kind of amazing sort of realization that autistic people have been contributing enormously to human progress. On the other hand, at least with modern society, we seem to have left them out to kind of languish uh, with high levels of, of suffering. So my, you know, the book is also a kind of call to action that it's time for these things to change. We need to redesign the way we hire people and redesign the workplace, redesign the educational settings, you know, to make them more autism friendly uh, because it's a, a, otherwise it's a form of discrimination mm. towards a towards a group with disabilities. Oh, I agree. And you've even proposed maybe two tracks to education. Is that right? Yeah. So if we think about school, um, you know, a lot of autistic people drop out of school and, you know, leave school with no formal qualifications, even though they've got good intelligence, because they find school a, a sort of, it's a painful place to be. You know, the, the, the mainstream classroom is very social. You're with 25 other kids or 30 kids. There's a lot of whispering and chatting. And, you know, for an autistic person, that can be overwhelming and confusing and stressful. Mm. You know, and then, you know, mainstream education sort of expects you to switch subjects every 30 minutes. Yeah. I don't know how it is in the States, but over here, you know, you have a lesson 
and then the bell rings and then you move to another lesson, you know. And, you know, for an autistic person who likes to just do one thing at a time and to go into something in great depth in a systematic way, really trying to understand the patterns in any subject, the idea of having to kind of interrupt their learning after 30 minutes and switch to something totally unrelated, again, is just uh, it's counter to how they learn. So one suggestion is that we should be rethinking even, you know, early education we should be looking at kids as they come into school at age three or four. And using that classification we talked about earlier, if a kid has more of a systemizing brain, type S, maybe they're going to benefit from learning in small groups and in a more hands-on way, doing experiments and observation. You know, And if they've got more of a type E brain, you know, where they can navigate the social world much more easily, maybe that's fine for them to be in the mainstream noisy classroom where they're learning from a teacher, you know. So these are just kind of suggestions, really, that we shouldn't assume that the educational system uh, is kind of well-suited to everybody, that one size fits all. You know, neurodiversity is the norm. That's to yeah. say there are many types of brains. We shouldn't assume that, you know, the, the way we've designed schools so far is um, optimal for for all kids. I love it. Uh, any further reflections on how we can nurture the inventors of the future? Well, so now if we think about, you know, the world of employment, you know, I think a lot of companies are beginning to realize that that having a team that's made up of, you know, of people who think differently to each other means that we don't just get the result where everyone is agreeing with each other. We need disagreement. We need um, we need new, fresh ideas. And, you know, having an autistic person in your team may just mean that, you know, they're thinking, I'm sorry to use that cliche, out of the box. Yeah. They're thinking differently. And that is the source of, of, of innovation. But they're also doing it now that we can see. They're doing it using this very systematic kind of logic if and then thinking so you know that could be you know if we can hire autistic people it's good for the individual yeah. it gets them it, gets, it, it, it it's inclusion it's potentially good for the company in terms of productivity um you know we shouldn't just see this as kind of a, a charitable thing to do for autistic people i think it could be good on both sides and I think it's good for society because, you know, we're, we are meant to be a civilized society where we don't just leave people out to, um, to waste away. Well, that's a, great, a really great point. Um, to what extent do you think um, some of the sex differences that you find in certain STEM fields is attributable to the sex difference in autism and, and systematizing uh, interest as opposed to just straight up sexism and discrimination? I know that's a loaded, right. ask, a loaded question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this is another one of those areas which has been controversial. So, to say um, the least. But, but, but so, there's got, I mean, there's this, there is a huge sex difference in systematizing, right? Yeah, there is. Uh, so, so I published another book back in 2003 called The Essential Difference, mm -hmm. which was looking at empathy and systemizing, but in terms of gender. Um, you know, suggesting that these are two dimensions 
two psychological processes where we do see sex differences on average. Mm. And there's, you know, depending on how you want to measure it, whether it's questionnaires or performance tests, you do see that on tests of empathy, on average, females tend to score higher. And on tests of systemizing, on average, males seem to score higher. You know, the, the, the differences aren't huge, but they're statistically significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw that particularly in that big study with the 600,000, mm-hmm. you know, there. And, you know, so it raises this question, is that also why autism is more common in, in males than in females? And I think probably historically, we've overlooked a lot of autistic females. Hmm. You know, so that's kind of a criticism of, of clinicians and of clinics and the methods that we use that we haven't been sort of recognizing autism in females. So there may have been underdiagnosis there, but even if you account for the underdiagnosis, because a lot of that seems to be shifting, mm. a lot more women and girls are coming forward for a diagnosis. There still seems to be a bias towards males in terms of autism. Um, so more, you know, Uh, more males get diagnosed. And it may be that we need to look at, you know, partly biological factors for that. And again, we're in the territory of of controversy. (laughs) Well, that's, uh, you know, the psychotic podcast is not uh, uh, antithetical to the the area of control. How did you phrase it? Controversy? I would say controversy, but I feel like the way you said it is much more elegant. Um, well, I mean, at the, I mean, I'm interested in the truth. Um, the, the, um, the tales at the tales, it's, it's yeah. really, truly striking, isn't it? Uh, just the systematizing, um, uh, proportion of males, uh, the extreme ta- right tail of, yeah. you know, of the distribution. So, yeah. So we were talking about the extreme of type S and the extreme mm. of type E. Mm. So the hyper systemizers or the hyper empathizers. And yeah, the sex ratio, the sex difference, the sex ratio is quite striking. Mm. It's probably at least two to one. Mm. Um, so twice as many males than females at the extremes of systemizing and vice versa, twice as many females at the extremes of empathizing. So that's, uh, that's not the whole story, but it, it just seems to me it's got to be part of the story if we're having an honest discussion. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, again, we need to um, sort of be measured and balanced in how we think about these sex differences, because some of it is going to come down to culture, mm-hmm. the way we raise our kids and the way boys and girls are exposed to different kinds of influences. But some of it may reflect prenatal biology. And I know that to some people, that's a kind of a red rag to mm-hmm. a bull. You know, the idea sure. that any sex differences might have any any biological component, whether we're talking about genetics or hormones. But a, a kind of more balanced view would recognize uh, that both may be, you know, interacting. Culture and biology may be interacting to produce these outcomes. Sure. And, and these, it, it, you know, just recognizing that, isn't that also the core of the whole neurodiversity movement? I mean, the neurodiversity movement is not saying it's not the neurocultural movement <laughs> or, or the or the uh, the culturally. Di- anyway, I, whatever. I'm trying to be uh, clever, but but the point is, it's neurodiversity, 
right? It's, it's yeah. a, there's a biological sure. component that we want to appreciate. There's something innate to a human that makes them who they are. And we want to yeah. acknowledge and honor yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that's important to kind of mention just before, I know we're getting close to the hour, yeah. is, yeah. Um, is, is about sexism. You know, you did, you did raise this question. Mm. And I think what the, what the science tells us is that you, you can't infer anything about a person in terms of their brain based on their gender because the science is only ever sort of done on groups so you can you can compare females and males on average and see these differences that we've talked about but you know a person's gender doesn't tell you anything about whether they might be great at pattern recognition hmm. or great at empathy because an individual may be typical or atypical for their sex sure so to kind of so to prejudge somebody in an interview based on their gender, are they suitable mm. for this job in, in STEM, for example, would be sexist and would be discriminating. Yeah. Uh, but that, that's, not what, that's not what we as scientists are doing, I hope. Yeah, none, of, not this, what yeah. Yeah, none of the science, none of the science justifies sexism. That's, that's for yeah. sure. Um, they're, they're separate domains. Um, my, last, my last question today uh, is really, quite frankly, the elephant in the room. Um, oh, yeah. Are you related to Sasha Maricone? Uh, I am. So he's my cousin, my first cousin. Um, so obviously we're working in quite different fields. Quite different fields. I, I appreciate his work. Um, so that just to kind of, you know, settle that one, we are related. But his, <laughs> his work provides a fascinating insight into human nature. I mean, do you, do you, do you, do you do you find him funny? I find his work funny, yeah. yeah. Um yeah. I find his work uh interesting and uh sometimes quite psychological. Mm. So sometimes what he's doing by using deception is bringing out people's prejudices. And I and I sort of see that what he's doing through comedy is um a form of social psychology. Mm. You know, when social psychologists go out into the wild and look at how people behave you know sometimes you can sort of set up situations so that people reveal their prejudices for example mm. and i think some of sasha's work has done that very effectively indeed uh you're, you're still in touch with him sure yeah i wonder if you ever like send him any like peer-reviewed papers and he's like oh this is very relevant to uh how i can trick someone or something <laughs> <laughs> um, so as I say, our work is yeah. very different. Yeah, but yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're we're a very close family. Sounds great. Well, hey, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the Psychology Podcast today, and for the really truly important work you're doing in in raising awareness about autism and its linkages thank to you. creativity. Thank you very much. Well, it's been a fun conversation. Really nice to see you again after all this time, and thank you for inviting me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in on the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 